Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. Welcome back to the program again this week, and thank you for joining us on a regular basis as we continue to share sometimes a lot of times series over a period of time. Uh, I trust that you're tuning in every week. Uh, one thing I would say to you, though, if you have just tuned in for the first time, we have already filmed, I think, at, at least eight programs on the book of Judges, and there are multiple uh, videos available on our YouTube channel. What I wanted to share with you is that if you've missed any of these, you can go back to our YouTube channel and watch them because we archive everything we air. Usually one day after we air it on national television, you can watch it at your leisure on YouTube. I really encourage you to go there and subscribe to that channel. It doesn't cost you anything, but it will let you know every time we upload a program to that uh, uh, particular uh, YouTube channel. Uh, also, you can listen to the podcast via uh, iTunes or through uh, your RSS device and uh, RSS feed, I'm sorry. All of those links are directly coming from my website. If you'll go to lynnhiles.com, in the upper right-hand corner, there are icons that will take you directly to our uh, video portions and to our uh, um, podcast. I understand now the podcast is also video available if you want to watch the podcast in video form. Uh, those things are there to be a blessing to you. And while you're there at the website, of course, there's multiple uh, products there like our books and CDs and stuff. And you can also, if you'd like to give a gift of an offering to help us to be able to take the gospel around the world. It is your partnership that enables us to do that. Uh, I, I don't want to say any more about that except to get in the Word. I'm going to review just a little bit uh, uh, from the book of Judges because from week to week I think it's probably easy to forget some of the things that we've shared. And truthfully, I don't think it hurts anything to repeat some things over and over because, uh, you know, I think sometimes even in my own teaching, when I repeat this, it really helps me retain it in my memory. We're not going to take a long time in review. I do want to go back, though, and tell you that every book of the Bible, usually the key that opens those scriptures is somewhere near the door. And we shared with you how that the book of Joshua starts out by saying, Now Moses, my servant, is dead. And arise now, Joshua, and get ready to take the people into the promised land. Moses, of course, being a picture of the law. And then uh, Joshua, his name, the Hebrew name Joshua, is the same name, Hebrew name, for Jesus, Yeshua. So what the book of Joshua is about is about a transition from exile and going back into their promised land and a return uh, to their covenant God and a return to the promised land. Moses brought you out with a rod. Joshua brings you in with a mercy seat. So the book of Joshua is about coming out of the, of the wilderness and going into the promised land. I really believe we're at a season in history where we need to shift from coming out to going in. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think the reason that manna ceases is because God wants to change the diet. 
you know, in the wilderness, we were provided with just enough. In the promised land, we're provided with more than enough. So they ate from the fruit of the land that year, and that's the reason that the the, uh, manna ceased. And so, uh, you know, sometimes when God ain't acting like He's supposed to in our own thinking, perhaps it's because He's about to open another dimension because He will not leave us without provision. Then we move into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges begins by saying, now after the death of Joshua, say it another way, now after the death of Yeshua, or if I could say it like this, now after the death of Jesus. And that was really the key that began to open this book to me. Because in the New Testament, after the death of Jesus, Jesus hands the keys of the kingdom to execute the government of heaven and the kingdom purposes and will of God in the earth. He hands it to 12 apostles. In the book of Judges, there's a tremendous type and shadow parallel because after the death of Joshua, there are 12 judges who arise. And what is so unique to me about the book of Judges and so encouraging is that the book of Judges is full of ordinary people who God uses to do extraordinary things. The miraculous is locked up in ordinary people. They are not your glow-in-the-dark prophets. Many of these names that I've talked about, you've probably heard very little about Ehud or Shamgar or Jephthah or Uh, Tola, or some of these other that are mentioned in the book of Judges, and some of them have a whole lot more narrative behind what they are doing. But each one of them, to me, pictures something that we need to execute as far as what the death of Jesus exacted for us in the new covenant. And one of the key scriptures that I've used is out of the book of Psalms, I believe it is 149, I think that's correct, where he says, sing unto the Lord a new song, and he says, and and is praising the congregation. And then he goes on to say, this honor have all of his saints to execute the judgment written. And when I began to share that, I, I shared with you how that sometimes whatever your concept of judgment is, Uh, determines how you think about that. But that whole psalm is about a new song, is about a a new covenant. Uh, Let them, uh, the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Zion is another symbol of the new covenant. According to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, we didn't come to Mount Sinai, but we've come to Mount Zion. Uh, let them sing aloud upon their beds. Uh, that's uh, that's the, from the posture of rest. Let a sharp two-edged sword be in their hand. And we talked about that a few weeks ago when we were talking about Ehud. But the, the two-edged sword is found in the fourth chapter of Hebrews where he declares that uh, uh, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Of course, the context of Hebrews 4 is it's not just any word that's quick and powerful. It's the word that flows from rest, because that's the whole theme of the fourth chapter of Hebrews, is the word that flows from rest is life-giving and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides between soul and spirit and thought and intent of the heart. And we talked about that when we talked about Ehud, because he had a two-edged dagger that he thrust into the obese uh, King Eglon, which to me speaks of what's heavy with flesh, 
And what happened is that the word that flows from rest will reveal what's in your heart, not so you can continue to act any way you want to, but it, as it was in the, uh, 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 the story about Eglon and Ehud, he put the two-edged sword in until the dirt came out. I'm convinced that the word of grace and the word that flows from the finished work and the word that flows from rest does not cause sin, but sometimes it exposes the dirt. Not so you can be embarrassed or condemned, but so that you can come boldly then to a throne of grace and obtain mercy and find a grace that will help. For the grace of God has appeared to all men, Titus said, teaching us to deny ungodliness, and grace is more than a message. It is a person. And so we see that in the story of Ehud, and we see that, and we talked about Shamgar a few weeks ago, and our last week, I believe it was, and today we're going to move into the fourth chapter of the book of Judges, and we're going to talk about executing the judgment written. Again, see Psalm 149, everything about it is screaming new covenant. It flows from, uh, they sing from their bed, they sing from Zion, they sing a new song, they have a two-edged sword in their hand. All of those, to me, are symbols that we find defined in the New Testament that are pointing to something concerning the new covenant. So when he gets to the very last verse and says, this honor have all of his saints, not just the glow-in-the-dark preachers, but all of his saints have the right to execute the judgment written. Now, when you think about judgment again, if you're thinking in terms of, well, let's just call down fire from heaven and destroy a few cities, that's not what I'm talking about. There is a judgment that is not always negative. It is positive. Jesus said when he was lifted up on the cross, now is the judgment of this world come. Now is the prince of this world been cast out. And if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And some say that the word men is not in there. He literally drew all judgment. I think it includes both, but he drew all judgment into himself so that in his finished work, he has made a final verdict. And the judgment, because of what happened at Calvary, the judgment is now in your favor. The ruling is in your favor. And my attorney said to me a number of years ago, he said, Lynn, judgment is not always a bad thing. I said, what do you mean when I think about judgment? I'm thinking about, boy, you're really in trouble. He said, no, 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 no. He said, if you're ever the plaintiff and the judge says the judgment is in favor of the plaintiff, that means you won the case. I said, well, that's that, I never thought of it like that. But see, something, something we need to realize, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the, the verdict and the judgment is in our favor. Somebody needs to hear that today. There's some things now that legally belong to you. You've been redeemed from sin, from sickness, from poverty, and from death. You've been redeemed from the curse of the law because Jesus became a curse for us. And so, uh, because cursed is every man who hangs on a tree, so that we can execute the judgment written. So when my attorney said that, he said, that means you won the case. I said, well, that, that's wonderful news. He said, you know what that means? I said, no, sir. He said, I said, it means I won. He said, no, that means nothing if you don't execute the judgment written. In other words, if you don't ever cash the check in the lawsuit you won, or you don't ever cash in on the fact that you have won the case and that that's your legal property or whatever it is that's in, 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 in court, 
If you don't execute that judgment, that's what faith does. Faith executes what Jesus paid for in His redemptive work. And that's what the book of of Judges is about. Now we're going to start here in the fourth chapter today because we're going to get to Deborah today. God's about to use a woman. And again, this is again trying to show us God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And this ought to encourage the women because both of these that are talked about in this story are women, both Deborah and Jael. God used them mightily to bring a deliverance to Israel. And I believe God is still using women. Now, before you decide you want to write to me and tell me God doesn't call women to preach or to women to minister, you just let me just tell you to save your stamp and your ink, because I've already looked into all of these things, and my point today is not to defend or to dismiss women, because my pastor is a woman. My mother was a great preacher, and she passed away, was a pastor. I have several friends that are women in ministry. I have no problem with women in ministry. If you do, that's your prerogative. You've got to take that up with God, but don't waste your time by writing to me and telling me you don't believe in women preachers and why you don't, because uh, the argument goes on and on. That's not the point of this message. The fact is, God used Deborah. It says, and, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, and when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel did again, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. I'm reading from the New King James Version. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth, Hegoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she was set under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Now let me just stop a moment because I think it's important to say she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. Uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. Now, to me, when I think about a palm tree, I think about what the Scripture says in the book of Psalms. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. He will grow like the cedars in Lebanon. So this to me speaks of a woman who is resting in the fact that she is righteous. In other words, this is one of the first things we must settle in our mind. I think we could look even at these women uh, as not just their gender alone, but as our own thinking, our, our soul. You know, the Greek word for uh, soul is suke. I always say when I'm preaching this, touch your neighbor and tell him, my name is Sue. How do you do? And my middle name is Kay. It's the Hebrew, or it's the Greek word, I'm sorry, for psyche, psychology, psychotic, are all words that we derive from the word uh, suke. David said this concerning, in, in, the, in the Greek language, the word soul is a feminine gendered word. It has gender in the Greek language. It is, my spirit is masculine. My soul is the place where I receive seed. It's where I receive concept or conception. It's where uh, the seed of the kingdom is sown into not just my heart. I think there's a lot of stuff that's in my spirit. 
that my mind needs to get into. Because when my spirit and my soul come together in union and agreement, it's like the marriage of a husband and a wife, and then it makes an adoption to wit the redemption of your body. Or can I say it like this? It produces a manifestation uh, in, there's a lot of stuff that's true of us in the realm of spirit that we need to understand in the realm of our soul because God wants to redeem us spirit, soul, and body. And what these uh, this series is going to talk about is stinking thinking and some stuff that happens between our ears. And so one of the very first things that we must do when, you know, I think even of the, the where the, the scripture, uh, you know, even where Paul was talking about you know, let the woman keep silent in the church. Now, I, 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 once again, I don't want to get into the debate of that. I believe it was a cultural thing, and I believe that the women said on one side, men said on the other, and when Paul was saying that to them, he was actually dealing with some cultural things. And if you want to ask your husband, uh, you know, don't holler across the aisle, basically is what he's saying. Wait till you get home, ask your husband who is at home. But I also think that there's a powerful principle here. If the woman is a picture of my soul, suke. David said, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. So if my mind, my will, and my emotions is my woman, it's, see, that's why as a male, I can be part of the bride of Christ. And that's why women, you can be part of the sons of God because your spirit is masculine in gender, especially in the Old Testament. Now, let me just say this to you. So if you see it like this, it says that if, let the woman, think about it like this. Let the woman, that is my suke, my soul, my carnal thinking, let my soul be silent. In, in, you know, let, let, let my woman be quiet in the religious assembly. When I'm coming before the presence of the Lord, sometimes I've got to still my soul and stop the battle that's going on between my ears. And we're going to see that as we see that even Sisera, who is the enemy here that's being dealt with, is really a picture of the carnal mind and of stinking thinking, is that we have to sometimes still our thinking and our minds to the point that we calm it, and if they let this woman, sometimes you got to tell my soul, my thinking, my my mind that torments me, that has thoughts that are full of fear and distress and anxiety and depression. Sometimes I've got to tell my soul, be silent, and talk to your husband who is at home, because my husband who is at home is none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I need to know anything, I'm going to ask my husband, Jesus, who is at home. In other words, stop listening to just what's going on in the natural realm. For to be carnally minded, that's the Greek word carny there is carnivore, carnivorous, flesh. I call it, if you're carnally minded, you're a meathead. So if you're thinking in terms of uh, carnality and your mind is full of fear and doubt and especially in this era where there is a flood coming out of the dragon's mouth to try to get you stirred up and angry and, and, and brought down to the realm of the earth. I believe it is in Revelation it said, rejoice you heavens and you that dwell therein. Uh, for, uh, and it goes, it talks about dwelling in the heavenly places and that we overcome 
uh, the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We begin to speak what's true of us in our spirit. There's a lot of stuff true in the spirit that we've not seen manifest because we haven't got our soul is being saved. I, I believe my, my spirit is saved, my soul is being saved, and my body will be saved. I believe there's redemption for all three dimensions, spirit, soul, and body. And I believe that when I receive with meekness the engrafted Word of God, it is able to save my soul the way I think. And that brings manifestation in my life. And salvation is more than just a trip to heaven. It's healed, delivered, set free. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a massive term that covers a whole lot. Salvation is bigger than just your ticket to heaven. And I think what James said, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And one of the things that that, that can say, a double-souled man. In other words, uh, and I think what he's talking about there, double-minded or double-souled, is you've got one mindset that's connected to an old covenant paradigm that's constantly telling you you're under a curse and you're constantly uh, being judged by God or that you're never good enough and you're not qualified. That really is uh, one mindset. But then you come to the new covenant and you see, wait a minute, I've been made accepted in the beloved. I'm qualified on the basis of what Jesus did. But a double-minded man or a double-souled man or something Somebody who's got their feet in both Old and New Covenant has a mixture. He said, let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. I believe a whole lot of our hindrances are because we have a double-minded mindset where one minute we're in the Old Covenant and the next minute we're in the New. I, I say this a lot of places when I get up to preach. I say, hello, my name is Lynn, and I am a recovering Pharisee. Because there are times when I fall back to my default settings of the legalism that I was underneath of. But I came to tell you, Deborah was sitting under a palm tree. She had settled in her mind, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And she was between Ramah and Bethel, which means the house of God in the mountains of Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful. So you get under the palm tree and you start to think different and you begin to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and you know, even that, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ has multiple levels. But one thing I think that we need to look at when we think about the, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ is that we need to bring all of our, that doesn't mean we chase every wild thought we've ever had because you'll spend all day saying, well, that's a bad thought. I need to get this thought. I need to get that thought. Whoa, there's a thought out of No, no. Bringing my thoughts into subjection to the obedience of Christ. In other words, not looking at my obedience that produced it, but His obedience. His obedience, bringing every thought into His obedience because His obedience, He was obedient even unto death. And when I bring every thought into what His obedience produced, it puts me in the posture where I start to receive because I pulled down this double duality of carnal-minded thinking, a double-minded man, I have started to listen and bring my soul, my woman, Suke, into subjection to my husband who is at home. And my husband who is at home is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm married to him, and because I'm married to him, I become doubly fruitful as I continue to dwell in the house of the Lord. And that's where Deborah was at when she was judging Israel. And the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Now let me just say this to you again. When you're sitting in that place 
And they said the children of Israel came to her for judgment. Let me tell you something that happens. When you come into that place where your mind is stayed on him, when you come to that place where you're thinking like him, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet took upon himself no reputation, humbled himself, became a servant. Is that when we start to think like he thinks, then that just out of our lifestyle, there is a judgment that begins to be executed, that begins to bring both positive and negative things. Let me just say this to you as well. A number of years ago, I heard the Lord say this to me out of the Scripture. He says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And I said, Lord, how do you reprove the unfruitful works of darkness? And he said to me, have no fellowship with it. And so, man, all of a sudden that became a real, I mean, that's an eye-opener to me. How do I reprove darkness? I do it by not fellowshipping with it. In other words, what you don't support goes away. This has been something a lot of people quote me on that, that phrase. What you don't support goes away. That's both in the positive and in the negative sense. I tell people, especially especially, there's this, this turmoil and the, the grace message of should we tithe, should we not tithe, uh, you know, uh, and, and I'll just tell you clearly that I don't believe you're under a curse if you don't. But I also believe that there are blessings to giving. And I do know that what you don't support goes away. So if you don't support your local church, it's going to go away. And I am sad to say that I've seen a, a few grace churches fold because people got so free they didn't feel like, well, I don't need to give, I don't need to serve, I don't need to do anything. Well, you see, there, there's a difference between works for righteousness and works of righteousness. Works for righteousness think you're trying to earn something from God. Works of righteousness are what flows from a revelation that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And that righteousness is not based on what I've done. It's based on what He did as a free gift. But when I truly believe that the just will live by faith, if I believe I'm righteous, I will act like I'm righteous. So in other words, what you don't support goes away. If you don't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, it brings judgment on it. In other words, if you don't support uh, you know, the things that you see on television, turn the channel. If you don't like what you see in the political arena, don't support that party. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, you can just see, you know, the silent majority speaking through a whole lot of things in conservative realms because they simply stopped supporting the things that they don't believe in. But the flip side of that is maybe you need to get behind that. See, that's just one side of it. You may stop supporting the unfruitful works of darkness, but maybe what you need to do is start supporting the good things, maybe the gospel, maybe the gospel of grace. Well, we're just about out of time, and that might be a good spot here to stop. I usually spend very little time talking about giving, but the truth of it is, is that maybe uh, 
the Lord led up to that just so I could say this to you. Maybe you need to kind of support this ministry and send a gift to help support it because what you don't support goes away. We're thankful for our partners who have helped us take the gospel around the world. So if you believe in us, don't just sit on the sideline and watch and not sew anything back in. Take a moment to go to the website and there's a place where you can give through our PayPal portal via credit card or debit card, or you can set up a monthly debit to become a partner. You can also send a check or a money order to the address that will come up on the screen, or you can call the number that's on the screen and someone will take your call. If you don't get an answer, leave a message. We don't man the phones 24 hours a day, but we do need you to get behind what you believe in. If you believe in us, get behind it. God bless you. Thank you for joining us. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.